The reading for today will be Colossians 1, 24 through 2, verse 5. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Caitlin. Good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you. Uh, If you are new, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are glad that you are here. Uh, We have been working our way through... uh, this little letter in the New Testament called Colossians that Paul writes to the church at Colossae or Colossae. And uh, we are in our third week of doing that. And uh, so far, Paul has introduced himself in the letter, which he always does. And then he prays for the recipients of his letters. That was the first week looking at this letter. And then last week, we talked about how Paul exalts uh, Jesus And he is supreme over everyone and everything. We talked about him as God and as creator and as sovereign, all of those things. And then we talked about what that means to the believer in Christ. So that's really important uh, as well. And then Paul ended last week's text that we looked at in verse 23, explaining to his uh, readers of this letter, which would include us, but also Uh, those in Colossae at the time, that he is a servant and minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so now in our passage today that Caitlin just read uh, for us, Paul describes his ministry. He describes this life of faith uh, in Jesus. And he says, this is really important for you to be able to grasp because even though our calls are different, the manifestation of our faith Uh, is different. The manifestation of our life as we walk with Christ is going to be different. We are all called to this life of faith. And so he begins to explain how his life of ministry applies to the Colossians as well as to us today. And and as I read these verses and study these verses, uh, it just seems to me that seven things come screaming out of these verses that we look at today. And and here they are. And I know it's a lot, but just be thinking about these things as we go through, especially the fourth one that I'll give you. But first of all, Paul says that the life of faith involves suffering. So we should not be surprised that there are going to be hard times in the midst of our faith. The idea of 
Christ saving us is not necessarily that he's going to solve all of our worldly problems, but rather that he's going to walk through them uh, with us and get us to an eternity with him where there will be no suffering. Second of all, he says the life of faith can also be a struggle. Even if you're not necessarily struggling, there are going to be challenges. It's going to be hard. There's going to be tribulation. And that's, that's a message that we hear throughout uh, Scripture. Uh, and the message isn't given to us with delight. It's not like the authors of that message are happy about it. It's just that they're realists. They're trying to explain to you, listen, we don't want you to have unrealistic expectations about what this life of faith means you live in a sinful, corrupt, dark world, and so there are going to be some challenges. The life of faith can be a struggle, and part of that struggle, honestly, is from people who don't understand those who are walking in faith and tend to turn on them as well. The third thing is that the life of faith has as its aspiration to grow and mature. So it's not just that we get saved and then that's kind of the end of the story, but rather when we come to Christ and give our life to him, that's the beginning of the journey, that's the beginning of the marathon, and the goal is to grow and to mature. And the way we mature is to seek after God's will and wisdom. And so that's the fourth one. The life of faith involves the pursuit of wisdom, and wisdom is a great treasure. Now, other than Christ, I would argue that this is the nexus of the passage, these nine verses that we look at today, is this idea of wisdom. Okay. Then number five is that the life of faith is at odds with the perspective of the world. It just is. If you let people know that you're a follower of Christ, there are going to be people who push back, who mock you, who don't understand. And, and a lot of times it's just basically out of their ignorance that they might um, uh, exhibit some measure of fear or some distrust or some anxiety or whatever it is. But this life of faith is always at odds with the perspective of the world around us. And that causes some of our struggles too. Number six is the life of faith has great purpose. So uh, Paul, Paul uh, writes also that we should never grow weary of doing good. Uh, because we can grow weary of doing good in, in a world that's pushing back against us. Paul continually reminds us that not to grow weary of doing good because there is purpose in what we are doing all the way to the end. And then number seven, the life of faith in all its both glory and challenges does bring great joy. Now, like I said, I know that's a lot, but if you haven't noticed, Paul has the tendency to pack a lot of information into just a little bit of text, but it's all important and worthwhile. And as a faith community here at Redemption Arcadia, I, I hope that we can see it all and begin to appropriate it to our lives as well. So let's dive in. I'm going to just take this uh, two or three verses at a time today. We're going to start with 24 through uh, 26. Paul writes, now, he says, after he became a minister in the, of the gospel, he says, now I rejoice in all the good times, I'm, and that's not what it says. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. I'm doing this for the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Now, although Paul has never met the readers of this letter, we talked about that the first week, 
He didn't plant the church at Colossae. He's never actually been there to meet the people, but he knows about them. He's heard about them, and his influence and legacy is a big part of the church. Um, he, he knows that he has something in common with them. He clearly identifies with them, and he identifies with us because of one thing, and that would be Christ in us. I'm sure many of you have had this experience uh, where you feel an affinity for somebody that you really haven't even met before, but you know that they're in Christ and you're in Christ, and suddenly there's a connection there with that person that can be even stronger than a DNA connection that you might have with someone else. I know that I've experienced that many times. And one of those connections with others in Christ comes actually from the afflictions. Not only the afflictions that Christ suffered in his crucifixion and his trial, not only the afflictions that Christ suffered as he came in his incarnation and walked with us on this earth, but also those visited on every single Christian in history since the first century, the afflictions that we all share as well. And what's interesting is that every affliction visited on us because of our faith, for our faith, also afflict Jesus, every single one of them. I mentioned this, I think, last week, or maybe the week before, if you'll recall, when Paul was Saul, before he became a Christian, he was a persecutor of Christians. He hated Christians, and he wanted to throw them in jail and execute them, and he would go to cities and drag them back. And he was on his way to Damascus to do that. You can read about this in the book of Acts. And on his way to Damascus, the resurrected Christ uh, confronted him abruptly, and he says to Saul, who became Paul, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church? He says, why are you persecuting me? So now here in particular, Paul is suffering affliction personally by being in the Roman prison because he's been preaching the gospel. And what Paul concludes about that is that it's better that he's being persecuted, he's being afflicted, it's better that he's in prison than those in Colossae. He's saying, I'm happy to do this for you. Let me do this for you. It's better that it's happening to me than to you. And then in verses 25 and 26, Paul explains why he and us suffer affliction as servants and ministers of, of Christ. He says we do it in order to make the word of God and the mystery of the gospel known. The word of God, scripture, and the mystery of the gospel, he wants those things to be Known. So the word, he specifically here is talking about the prophetic word in the Old Testament that points to the fact that a Messiah is going to come and that in fact the Messiah has come in Jesus. So that's, that's the specific word he's pointing to, but he's also pointing to the word meaning the, the entirety of God's word, wisdom, will, and instruction for us. And then the mystery, the mystery of the gospel is actually the grace part. We've talked about how people just really struggle with this notion of grace, the fact that there's nothing that we're supposed to do in our salvation that Jesus has done it all. In other words, we can't save ourselves. And that is the good news, that is the gospel. We just give our lives to Christ. And then there's work afterwards. The work we do in ministry, I want to just make sure we're clear on this. The work we do in ministry is not for our salvation, but it's because of our salvation. It's a result. It's the fruit of our salvation. And then this mystery, 
We need to understand also the way Paul talks about this mystery. This mystery isn't a mystery in the sense that it cannot be known, but rather it's an open secret that is knowable to anybody who hears the proclamation of the gospel and comes to Jesus. It's, it's knowable to anybody that is the recipient of any message about Jesus and, and, and says, okay, I want to know more about that. I want to be in Christ. I want that gift of grace from Jesus. And then we see the rest of chapter, <clears throat> chapter 1, 27 through 29. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the people who aren't necessarily known as God people, are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Notice the connection between maturity in our faith and wisdom. How important God's wisdom is to us maturing in our faith. And he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, Jesus' energy, that he powerfully works within me. So Paul now explains that this mystery, this open secret of the good news of Jesus that anyone can know, is is glorious riches. It's the richest thing that we can have. It's great wealth for anyone who has embraced it, including the Gentiles. He says, this is, this is Paul who, who really didn't like Gentiles before all of this happened to him, and now he's proclaiming this to the Gentiles. He wants the Gentiles to be grafted in. He writes in Ephesians that the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles has been broken down by the gospel and that the two have become one. And that is a beautiful thing that happens in the gospel. I think of, I think of the, uh, something called the contact hypothesis that research shows and helps us to understand and explain that when people are in close proximity to each other, uh, if they have differences, if there are if there is prejudice or bias that we hold towards people when we see them from far away, the closer we get to them, the, the less there is of that prejudice and bias. The more we hear each other's stories, the more we find that we have in common. And, and in the gospel, this is particularly powerful. It happens with people at any rate. But in the gospel, it's particularly powerful because this is more powerful than DNA. When you meet somebody who you assume from afar is very different from you, and then you find out you're both in Christ, man, it's like those walls, those, those suspicions, those barriers, those buffers, those margins, they all just come crashing down. And that is an absolutely beautiful thing. And then verse 28 is a key to this. The absolute exclusive epicenter of both the word and the mystery of the gospel, verses 25 and 26, is Jesus. Everything points to him. So it is in Christ that we have this desire to grow up and be mature in, to be found worthy of our call in the gospel of, ministry, of Jesus Christ in our ministry, in our lives. And, and, and Paul says that the way to do that is to start seeking after God's will and wisdom. Now, now I keep bringing up this word wisdom. So what does wisdom mean? So just a, just a few things. We need to understand that wisdom is different than knowledge. They're both good. But, but uh, people, most people describe uh, wisdom as the proper application of knowledge. 
Okay? In other words, wisdom could be also described as discernment. It's insight. It's understanding uh, what's right and what's wrong, no matter how much knowledge you have. Personally, I, and I don't mean this as an as a insult in any way, shape, or form. It's just an observation. I know people who have PhDs, and they don't have much wisdom. Lots of knowledge, very little discernment. And, and that can be very, very dangerous. There's this, old, um, there's this old saying that knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, right? Wisdom is knowing that you don't put a tomato in a fruit salad, right? That's, that, I can't believe that some people, I, I thought that was like every, with Twitter and Instagram out there, I thought everybody knew that, okay? Anyway, I, th that's, that's the difference. So what we're looking at is, is knowing Christ, knowing God's will, submitting ourselves to his wisdom, and that then being able to look at the rest of the world and being to apply discernment so that we can navigate and walk our way through this dark and corrupt world. And that's the Holy Spirit that fills us, that helps us and leads us in that as well. And that's why we pro constantly proclaim him and teach him. Uh, Trey said that last week at the benediction. He said, look, every week you come here, you're going to get Jesus, you're going to get the gospel, because that's where it all starts. We want to make sure that everybody hears that. So we need to remember that the journey we have with Jesus does not end in our conversion to Christianity, but rather it's just begun at that point. We are works in progress. Now, I know in the marketplace it's different. We need to present ourselves as a finished product, and that's a good thing, and I understand that. And you should present yourself in the marketplace as a finished product. You're not going to get a job or get the promotion or get the client if you walk in and kind of go, yeah, I'm not sure I know what I'm doing, but I'm working on it. <laughs> okay, You're just not going to get the job or the client. But God looks at us and also sees the reality of our eternal life. He, he, he writes through Paul to the church in Philippi. He says, and I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, though the outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. And of course, he says in Romans chapter 8, we are being conformed to the image of God's Son. Those are all really important notions. And then in verse 29, Paul explains that it is for the privilege and priority of proclaiming Jesus that he toils and struggles. So the word toil means to work endlessly. Okay, so now I know I'm going maybe a little bit beyond the text here, but I'm not sure, uh, I'm not sure that anybody is ever, who is in Christ, anybody is ever supposed to retire from proclaiming Christ in their life. You may retire from your marketplace job, but you never retire from this life in Christ. You never retire from a life of service. You never retire from a life of proclaiming him. As a pastor, I've had really the privilege of being with people on their deathbed and listening to them proclaim Christ and the comfort he gives them and the hope that they have in him on their deathbed and, and seeing that and, and going, yes, this is a great testimony, and this is how I know, one of the ways that I know that this gospel is real, that all the way to the end, people are proclaiming Jesus. And then the word struggles really just means to battle, to compete, to get in the trenches and strive and to contend. But then he makes this very clear. By what power does he toil and struggle? In Christ. It's in Christ. It's not by his own power. And now we go to chapter 2. But we continue this thought process because Paul just kind of gets on this roll. Verses 1 through 3, he, he writes, 
For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. So there's his, his, um, uh, uh, his admission that he has never met them face to face, but he's still writing them. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches and full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So verse 1, Paul explains that his toil and struggle for the gospel is general. It is for the whole world, but it's also specific. Paul makes it specific to Colossae and to Laodicea. That's, we talked about that the first week. Laodicea is another city that's about 10 miles to the, to the northwest of Colossae. And then verses 2 and 3, the tangible result of the toil and struggle is this. Encouragement, unity, love, wisdom, discernment, and knowledge in Jesus. There is a tangible benefit to this hard work. I'm going to talk about that more in the later uh, more uh, later in the message. In other words, what Paul is saying is that this faith community that he's writing is being strengthened by these things. Now, why would this be important that he say this? Well, he get, starts to get to it in verses 4 and 5. And verses 4 and 5 set us up for next week, which is when he goes after these, these uh, plausible uh, worldly philosophies, uh, these things that are, that are infiltrating into the church. And we're going to be looking at those next week. But he begins to set us up with verses 4 and 5. He, he writes, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Verse 4, he says, don't be hoodwinked. That means deceived. And don't be hornswoggled. Anybody ever heard the word? I, I always wanted to use that in a sermon. <laughs> hornswoggled. Doesn't that just sound like you got to be from Texas to use that word? Uh, anyway, hornswoggled means victimized. Okay, so don't be, don't be deceived and don't be victimized by the seemingly plausible philosophies, fads, and arguments of the world without Jesus. If we are strong and wise in Christ, Paul contends, we have the wisdom and discernment needed to resist these plausible arguments that the world and the culture is constantly throwing at us. Plausible arguments and our philosophies, principles, and declarations that appear on the surface to be true and are readily accepted by the soft and shallow world, but are in fact lies and fallacies. They are perspectives, here you go, I love this definition. They are perspectives that are popular, but erroneously affirmed. Popular, but erroneously affirmed. Don't you feel like we're living in a culture where there are things that are popular, but erroneously affirmed right now? So verse 5, Paul says that the firm foundation of Jesus and the gospel is what firms up our faith to be able to handle these things. And, and it's interesting, I just have to read this. Jesus claims the same thing. In the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 7, Jesus says this, chapter 7 of Matthew, he says this. Everyone then who hears these words, this long sermon that he had just preached, hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man. See, there's that wisdom thing again. Will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it, would, it had been founded on the rock. 
And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and the house fell and great was the fall of it. So, I'm already at the point of wrapping up this sermon, but you need to understand the wrap-up is a little bit longer than it usually is, okay? So you're like, wow, that was fast, okay? Yes, it was, but that's because I got a lot here at the end. So here we go. And in wrapping up, there are two things, which have many tentacles, two things that I think that we should hit and that I hope are helpful. But in saying that, let me first mention that we've already hit the most important thing in this message, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That message, the gospel of Jesus, that you and I are born into a world of sin and as such we are infected and afflicted with that sin ourselves and as a result we are separated from God and there's nothing that we can do to reconcile ourselves to God and that's why Jesus came to live this perfect life, die on the cross as the perfect sacrificial lamb and then be resurrected from the dead, victory over Satan, sin and death. And if we embrace him, he appropriates his righteousness and holiness to us. That's the gospel, and we are reconciled to God. That's the gospel, and that is good news. And that's for anybody in this room right now that doesn't know that yet, we would pray that you would come to, uh, come to Jesus. And if you want to talk to us about that, you have some questions about that, we understand we would love to be able to talk to you. But these other two items are for those who already do know Jesus, and they are applicable to us in the extreme today. And they are manifest from the gospel. Here's the first one. We should understand and acknowledge that Paul's suffering and affliction, and by extension our suffering and affliction, actually served to heighten and extend the good news of Jesus Christ. Okay, so here you go. Paul writes a couple of other letters at the same time that he writes to the church in Colossae. He's in prison in Rome. He's being persecuted for simply going out and telling people about Jesus. That's it. He's being persecuted for that. He's committed a crime in the eyes of the world. And so as he writes to the church in Colossae, he also writes to the church in Philippi, one of his favorite churches. And here's what he writes to them in chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's saying, it's good that they took me from Jerusalem, took me across the Mediterranean Sea. I got bit by a snake on the way, by the way. Got caught in a really bad storm. We all thought we were going to die. I finally made it to prison, and they throw me in a prison cell. All of this is good because it is serving the gospel. It's advancing the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So now he's saying, look, I have this opportunity to share this gospel this good news of Jesus with people that I never would have met outside of my imprisonment. And so now he's in there proclaiming the gospel to everybody who is in prison with him, including the prison guards. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Uh, very few of us, if any of us, are ever going to be exposed to stuff like this. But there's some interesting things in in ancient history and in recent history that, that demonstrate what Paul is talking about. There was a, there was a man towards the end of the first century. Uh, his name was Polycarp. Anybody heard of him besides you seminary professors? And, and By the way, Zach Hines, I just, I, I, 
You know what happened to him on Friday? He graduated from seminary, right there. <laughs> and his mother's here with him, so. Um, I immediately texted him right after his graduation. I said, now that you have a degree in theology, could you please answer this question that people have been asking for centuries? How many angels can really dance on the head of a pin? He had, he had no answer. Don't go to that seminary. OK, so anyway, OK. Hey, Fuller didn't answer it for me either, so they're out as well. All right. Anyway, Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna in the late first century. Okay. And so they came to get him because he's proclaiming the gospel. The Romans did. And, and so uh, the Romans, besides crucifixion, had as a, uh, a way of executing people, uh, burning people at the stake. Have you ever heard of that? Okay. What you maybe don't know about burning at the stake was they had, they had two kinds of burns. They had a slow burn and a fast burn. A fast burn was if they wanted to show mercy to the person and get it over with. A slow burn is if they really hated the person that they were executing. And they, they knew how to build the fire under the stake in order to make it last about 20 minutes before the person would die. And that's what they did to Polycarp. And you know what Polycarp did as he was dying? He proclaimed Jesus. And he proclaimed forgiveness for the people that were doing this to him. Imagine the people that saw that and changed their mind about Jesus. God uses that. This is even uh, tougher. I'm sure many of you remember the Christians who were executed by ISIS on a Libyan beach some seven years ago. Just absolutely tragic. I had real dissonance about looking at the video of that, but I felt like I had to. And it was, uh, it was really tough, very tragic. And yet, interestingly enough, the result of that has been many people coming to faith. God somehow has used that as well. So here's the second thing. Paul keeps writing, and he writes this everywhere, that embracing the gospel, that knowing Jesus and being in Christ makes us rich. For instance, in this letter, he writes, all the riches of full assurance of knowing God's mystery, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another way to say that is that in Christ we have spiritual wealth. But we also know that this wealth comes at a cost. The cost was Jesus on the cross, certainly, but the cost is also our afflictions, our tribulation, our trials, our challenges, and our sufferings as we follow Jesus. Now, this is where I, I get into this sort of ironic, it's funny to me sort of conversation that I like to have. This is funny to me, funny in an ironic way, not in a ha-ha way. Every other wealth in this world that we can think of, every other kind of wealth in this world that we can think of, we all understand, everybody, inside the church, outside the church, we all understand and know, and we accept the fact that wealth always comes with a cost and that it requires discipline to attain. Wealth always comes with a cost and it requires discipline to attain. Financial wealth, educational wealth, experiential wealth, vocational wealth, chronological wealth, what that means is good time management. Health, wealth, fitness, all of that. And expertise wealth, knowing something better than anybody else. Whatever wealth that we have or strive for, we know it'll cost us something to gain, and that we will have to discipline ourselves to be able to acquire it. By the way, it doesn't take any discipline to spend it. 
That's why people who acquire wealth without any cost or discipline have the tendency to spend it very quickly because they don't understand. So we understand that acquiring this takes discipline and there's going to be a cost involved. We have to dedicate ourselves to it. But when it comes to Jesus and when it comes to a mature faith, which Paul is talking about here is, is pursuing this mature faith, pursuing knowing God and his wisdom, when it comes to living, as Paul so often writes to us, when it becomes living a life worthy of our calling in Jesus, we bellow, unfair, unfair, when we discover that there's a cost and discipline to this life. And what's even more ironic is that the biggest and most impossible cost and discipline for this faith has already been borne for us by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The biggest part has already been borne for us. He's done everything that we couldn't do. But when we come to him, he also calls us to follow him and grow up in him. And so that's our cost. That's our contribution. That's our sacrifice. That's our discipline. That's our cross. He says, deny yourselves and pick up your cross when you follow me. So like Paul, we're going to toil and struggle. And that means primarily two big bucket items that we have to embrace. Number one is... We need to do everything we can to know him more deeply and more intimately. We need to be able to, not saying at the expense of everything else, but what I'm saying is that we need to arrange our lives so that there's time in our life for deep work in the gospel. Worship, studying his word, serving others, being concerned about loving our community. And then the second big bucket item is, it, is, is the way Peter says it. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. He writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials that come upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. Hey, I just accepted Jesus. Why do I still have problems at work? Don't be surprised. Rather, you should rejoice that you share in the sufferings of Christ. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Clearly, one of the most misplaced expectations people have of Jesus is that we get all the benefits of Jesus without any of the cost, sacrifice, or discipline. We never seem to place that expectation on any other worthy endeavor in life, but we do, it seems, on Jesus. We, we need to be able to come and, and experience Jesus in a deep and profound way, and that means we have to put forth a little bit of effort. And, and what we're trying to get at here is God's will and God's wisdom. Because throughout, script, throughout Scripture, throughout the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, and throughout the Gospels and the New Testament letters, it is clear that the writers of Scripture, the writers of, of the Bible, say that the best way to navigate this dark world, this corrupt world, is with the wisdom of God, the discernment that God gives us. For 23 years, I've been teaching in the Communication and Humanities Department as an adjunct instructor at Paradise Valley Community College. And for 23 years, 46 semesters, I have walked by this sign in the quad of the M building where my classes are every week. And I just walked by it again this last week. I know it's hard to see, but I wanted to show you that this, this um, monument is in the quad there. And here's, here's what it says. You all know who H.G. Wells was? Or at least you can look him up on the internet. So H, it's a quote from H.G. Wells. 
And the school decided to put this huge monument out there years ago when they built the school. And here's the quote, civilization is the race between education and catastrophe. And for 23 years, I have walked by that placard and I have felt that there was something not quite right about it. But I could never put my finger on it. It took 23 years of walking by that, shaking my head and going, something not quite right. I'm not sure what it is. And then this last week, this last week, I walked by, and I think it's because I've been studying this passage, and it hit me. Wells was wrong. May he rest in peace. I'm sorry to insult somebody like that. But he was wrong. Civilization is not a race between education and catastrophe. It's a race between wisdom and catastrophe. You can be educated beyond your intelligence. You can be educated beyond your wisdom. What we need is wisdom. We need discernment. And that's going to prevent us from going into catastrophe or chaos. Chaos could be another word for catastrophe. You see, Jesus went to the cross in order to give us life, but that life involves knowing God's will and having his wisdom available to us. And so we already have the best that Jesus has given us by going to the cross. Our response really should be one of gratitude, joy, and commitment, but also now we should be pursuing his will and his wisdom. And that's what sets us up for next week. Next week, we're going to do the rest of chapter 2. It's going to be the longest slog that we have in this series on Colossians. We're going to go deeper into the plausible arguments and worldly philosophies that are capturing the hearts, minds, and imaginations of those in the church at Colossae, and those, those same arguments have the opportunity to capture our hearts and minds as well, and that's why we need to look at it. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we know that uh, we know that what you want for us and what you have for us is for our best. And the challenge for us, of course, is that it just doesn't always seem that way to us from our limited perspective. And so my prayer this morning is that, is that we, would, we would be given the strength and the courage, that we would be filled with your spirit in such a way that we would be able to walk through those, those valleys in our life where we are questioning and where we feel like we need more from you. So God, we know that you always give us exactly what we need, but help us to understand what that is in whatever context we're in. Help us to have your word illuminated for us in such a way that we'd be able to apply it to our lives. Help us to see our circumstances for what they really are, especially in light of the gospel and what your son has done for us. Help us to see that it's your love and your grace that, uh, that commands all of this in our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, every, every week we get to a point, we're at that now, where we have a time of response and reflection. We're going to uh, sing a couple of songs together as we do this. When you join in on those songs is up to you and how you are led. Um, uh, at least during the second song, you might consider standing with the rest of us as, as we uh, sing that last song. But during the first song, we also come and take communion, if our communion servers would uh, come forward. We come to the Lord's table. For those of us who are followers of Christ, those of us who have said yes to Jesus, we recognize that on, on the night that he was betrayed, he's sitting with his disciples, and, and he changes the Passover meal at one point when he gets to the third cup, the cup of thanksgiving. 
He breaks the bread and he says, this is my body and it's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he lifts up that cup, that cup of thanksgiving, and he says, this is the cup, it's a, it's a cup of wine, but he says, this is the cup of the blood, my blood, of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And Paul reminds us that as often as we come and we take this bread and eat of this, uh, eat this bread and take of this cup, we are proclaiming Jesus' death until he comes again. And so when we come out and come forward, we are acknowledging that we are lost without Jesus, but celebrating that we have Jesus. And that's what it is. And so also, if you need prayer, we'll have uh, deacons, elders, staff, pastors standing in the wings for, for you to be able to come and pray with or ask questions. And they'll, they'll hang around during the second song and even after uh, the service as well. And so we're going we're gonna to do all of that right now.
Well, again, happy Mother's Day. Remember to grab a flower on your way out, moms. We love you. We appreciate you. Um, from Colossians, later on in chapter 3, uh, Paul says this. Here's my prayer for us this week, that this is what our weeks would look like. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Then he says this, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Go in peace. Live all of life all for Jesus. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.